0: Section 8 of the Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. Martin. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 1, Section 8, Letters to Her Husband by Abigail Adams Abigail Adams 1744-1818 to by Lucia Gilbert Runkle The Constitution of the State of Massachusetts, adopted in the year 1780, contains an article for the encouragement of literature, which, it declares, should be fostered because its influence is to countenance and inculcate the principles of humanity and general benevolence Public and private charity, industry and frugality, honesty and punctuality in dealings, sincerity and good humor, and all social affections and generous sentiments among the people. In these words, as in a mirror, is reflected the Massachusetts of the eighteenth century, where households like the Adamses, the Warrens, the Otises, made the standard of citizenship. Six years before this remarkable document was framed, Abigail Adams had written to her husband, then engaged, in nation-making in Philadelphia. I most sincerely wish that some more liberal plan might be laid and executed for the benefit of the rising generation, and that our new Constitution may be distinguished for encouraging learning and virtue. And he, spending his days and nights for his country, sacrificing his profession, giving up the hope of wealth, writes her. I believe my children will think that I might as well have labored a little night and day for their benefit. But I will tell them that I studied and labored to procure a free constitution of government for them, to solace themselves under, and if they do not prefer this to ample fortune, to ease and elegance, they are not my children. They shall live upon thin diet, wear mean clothes, and work hard with cheerful hearts and free spirits, or they may be the children of the earth, or of no one for me. In old Weymouth, one of those quiet Massachusetts towns, half-hidden among the umbrageous hills, where the meeting-house and the schoolhouse rose before the settlers' cabins were built, where the one elm-shaded main street stretches its breadth between two lines of self-respecting isolated frame-houses, each with its grassy dooryard, its lilac bushes, its fresh-painted offices, its decorous wood-pile laid with architectural balance and symmetry, there in the dignified parsonage on the eleventh of november of seventeen forty four was born to parson william smith and elizabeth his wife abigail the second of three beautiful daughters her mother was a quincy of a distinguished line and her mother was a norton of a strain not less honorable nor were the smiths unimportant in that day girls had little instruction abigail says of herself in one of her letters I never was sent to any school. Female education in the best families went no further than writing and arithmetic, in some few and rare instances, music and dancing. It was fashionable to ridicule female learning, but the household was bookish. Her mother knew the British poets and all the literature of Queen Anne's Augustan age. Her beloved grandmother Quincy at Mount Woolston seemed to have had both learning and wisdom, and to her father she owed the sense of fun, the shrewdness, the clever way of putting things which makes her letters so delightful. The good parson was skilful in adapting Scripture to several exigencies, and throughout the revolution he astonished his hearers by the peculiar fitness of his texts to political uses. It is related of him that when his eldest daughter married Richard Cranch, he preached to his people from Luke tenth chapter, forty second verse and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. When a year later young John Adams came courting the brilliant Abigail, the parish, which assumed a right to be heard in the question of the destiny of the minister's daughter, grimly objected. He was upright, singularly abstemious, studious, but he was poor. He was the son of a small farmer, and she was of the gentry. He was hot-headed and somewhat tactless, and offended his critics. Worst of all, he was a lawyer, and the prejudices of colonial society reckoned a lawyer hardly honest. He won this most important of his cases, however, and Parson Smith's marriage sermon for the bride of nineteen was preached from the text, For John came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say he hath a devil. For ten years Mrs. Adams seems to have lived a most happy life either in Boston or Braintree, her greatest grief being the frequent absences of her husband on circuit. His letters to her are many and delightful, expressing again and again, in the somewhat formal phrases of the period, his affection and admiration. She wrote seldom her household duties and the care of the children, of whom there were four in ten years, occupying her busy hands. Meanwhile the clouds were growing black in the political sky. Mr. Adams wrote arguments and appeals in the news journals over Latin signatures, papers of instructions to representatives in the general court, and legal portions of the controversy between the delegates and Governor Hitchinson. In all this work Mrs. Adams constantly sympathized and advised. In August of 1774 he went to Philadelphia as a delegate to a general council of the colonies called to concert measures for united action, and now begins the famous correspondence which goes on for a period of nine years, which was intended to be seen only by the eyes of her husband, which she begs him again and again to destroy as not worth the keeping, yet which has given her a name and place among the world's most charming letter-writers. Her courage, her cheerfulness, her patriotism, her patience never fail her. Braintree, where, with her little brood, she is to stay, is close to the British lines. Raids and foraging expeditions are imminent. Hopes of a peaceful settlement grow dim. What course you can or will take, she writes her husband, is all wrapped in the bosom of futurity. Uncertainty and expectation leave the mind great scope. Did ever any kingdom or state regain its liberty when once it was invaded without bloodshed? I cannot think of it without horror. Yet we are told that all the misfortunes of Sparta were occasioned by their too great solicitude for present tranquillity, and from an excessive love of peace they neglected the means of making it sure and lasting. They ought to have reflected, says Polybius, that, as there is nothing more desirable or advantageous than peace, when founded in justice and honor, so there is nothing more shameful and at the same time more pernicious, when attained by bad measures and purchased at the price of liberty. Thus, in the high Roman fashion, she faces danger. Yet her sense of fun never deserts her, and in the very next letter she writes, parodying her husband's documents, the drought has become very severe. My poor cows will certainly prefer a petition to you setting forth their grievances and informing you that they have been deprived of their ancient privileges whereby they are become great sufferers, and desiring that these may be restored to them. More especially, as their living, by reason of the draught, is all taken from them, and their property, which they hold elsewhere, is decaying, they humbly pray that you would consider them, lest hunger should break through stone walls. By midsummer the small hardships entailed by the British occupation of Boston were most vexatious. We shall very soon have no coffee, no sugar, nor pepper, but wortleberries and milk we are not obliged to commence for, she writes, and in letter after letter she begs for pins. Needles are desperately needed, but without pins how can domestic life go on and not a pin in the province? On the fourteenth of September, she describes the excitement in Boston, the governor mounting cannon on Beacon Hill, digging entrenchments on the neck, planting guns, throwing up breastworks, encamping a regiment. In consequence of the powder being taken from Charlestown, she goes on to say a general alarm spread through all the towns and was soon caught in Braintree. And then she describes one of the most extraordinary scenes in history. About eight o'clock on Sunday evening she writes to her husband. At least two hundred men, preceded by a horse-cart, passed by her door in dead silence and marched down to the powder-house. Whence they took out the town's powder, because they dared not trust it, where there were so many Tories, carried it into the other parish, and there secreted it. On their way they captured a notorious king's man, and found on him two warrants aimed at the commonwealth. When their patriotic trust was discharged, they turned their attention to the trembling Briton. Profoundly excited and indignant, though they were, they never thought of mob violence, but True to the inherited instincts of their race, they resolved themselves into a public meeting. The hostile warrants being produced and exhibited, it was put to a vote whether they should be burned or preserved. The majority voted for burning them. Then the two hundred gathered in a circle round the single lantern and maintained a rigid silence while the offending papers were consumed. That done, the blazing eyes in that grim circle of patriots watched the blazing writs. They called a vote whether they should huzza, but it being Sunday evening it passed in the negative. Only in the New England of John Winthrop and the Mathers, of John Quincy and the Adamses, would such a scene have been possible. A land of self-conquest and self-control of a deep love of the public welfare and a willingness to take trouble for a public object. A little later Mrs. Adams writes her husband that there has been a conspiracy among the Negroes, though it has been kept quiet. I wish most sincerely, she adds, that there was not a slave in the province. It always appeared a most iniquitous scheme to me to fight ourselves for what we are daily robbing and plundering from those who have as good a right to freedom as we have nor were the sympathies of this clever logician confined to the slaves a month or two before the declaration of independence was made she writes her constructive statesman i long to hear that you have declared independence and by the way in the new code of laws which i suppose it will be necessary for you to make i desire you would remember the ladies and be more gracious and favorable to them than your ancestors do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion, and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. That your sex are naturally tyrannical is a truth so thoroughly established as to admit of no dispute, but such of you as wish to be happy willingly give up the harsh title of master for the more tender and dearing one of friend. Why, then, not put it out of the power of the vicious and lawless to use us with cruelty and indignity with impunity? Men of sense, in all ages, abhor those customs which treat us only as the vassals of your sex. Regard us, then, as being placed by providence under your protection, and, in imitation of the Supreme Being, make use of that power only for our happiness." A declaration of principles which the practical housewives follow by saying, I have not yet attempted making saltpeter, but after soap-making believe I shall make the experiment. I find as much as I can do to manufacturing clothing for my family which would else be naked. I have lately seen a small manuscript describing the proportions of the various sorts of powder fit for cannon, small arms, and pistols. If it would be of any service your way, I will get it transcribed and send it to you. She is interested in everything, and she writes about everything in the same wholehearted way. Farming, paper money, the making of molasses from corn stalks, the new remedy of inoculation, common sense and its author, the children's handwriting, the state of Harvard College, the rate of taxes, the most helpful methods of enlistment, Chesterfield's letters, the town elections, the higher education of women, and the getting of homespun enough for Mr. Adams's new suit she manages, with astonishing skill, to keep the household in comfort. She goes through trials of sickness, death, agonizing suspense, and ever with the same heroic cheerfulness that her anxious husband may be spared the pangs which she endures, when he is sent to France and Holland. She accepts the new parting as another service pledged to her country. She sees her darling boy of ten go with his father aware that at the best she must bear months of silence knowing that they may perish at sea or fall into the hands of privateers but she writes with indomitable cheer sending the lad tender letters of good advice a little didactic to modern taste but throbbing with affection dear as you are to me says this tender mother i would much rather you should have found your grave in the ocean you have crossed than see you an immoral profligate or graceless child it was the lot of this country's parson's daughter to spend three years in london as wife of the first american minister to see her husband vice-president of the united states for eight years and president for four and to greet her son as the eminent monroe's valued secretary of state though she died seventy-four years young before he became president she could not in any station be more truly a lady than when she made soap and chopped kindling on her Braintree farm at Braintree she was no more simply modest than that at the court of St. James, or in the Executive Mansion. Her letters exactly reflect her ardent, sincere, and energetic nature. She shows a charming delight when her husband tells her that his affairs could not possibly be better managed than she manages them, and that she shines not less as a statesman than as a farmeress. And although she was greatly admired and complimented, no praise so pleased her as his declaration that for all the ingratitude, calumnies, and misunderstandings that he had endured, and they were numberless, her perfect comprehension of him had been his sufficient compensation. To Her Husband Braintree, May twenty-fourth, 1775 My dearest friend, Our house has been upon this alarm in the same scene of confusion that it was upon the former soldiers coming in for a lodging for breakfast for supper for drink etc sometimes refugees from boston tired and fatigued seek an asylum for a day a night a week you can hardly imagine how we live yet to the houseless child of want our doors are open still and though our portions are but scant we give them with good will my best wishes attend you, both for your health and happiness, and that you may be directed into the wisest and best measures for our safety and the safety of our posterity. I wish you were nearer to us. We know not what a day will bring forth, nor what distress one hour may throw us into. Hitherto I have been able to maintain a calmness and presence of mind, and hope I shall let the exigency of the time be what it will. Adieu. Breakfast calls. Your affectionate portia weymouth june fifteenth seventeen seventy five i hope we shall see each other again and rejoice together in happier days the little ones are well and send duty to papa don't fail of letting me hear from you by every opportunity every line is like a precious relic of the saints i have a request to make of you something like the barrel of sand i suppose you will think it but really of much more importance to me it is that you would send out Mr. Bass, and purchase me a bundle of pins and put them in your trunk for me. The cry for pins is so great that what I used to buy for seven shillings and sixpence are now twenty shillings, and not to be had for that. A bundle contains six thousand, for which I used to give a dollar. But if you can procure them for fifty shillings or three pounds, pray let me have them. I am, with the tenderest regard, your Portia." Braintree, June eighteenth, 1775 My Dearest Friend The day, perhaps the decisive day, has come on which the fate of America depends. My bursting heart must find vent at my pen. I have just heard that our dear friend, Dr. Warren, is no more, but fell gloriously fighting for his country, saying, Better to die honorably in the field than ignominiously hang upon the gallows. Great is our loss! HE HAS DISTINGUISHED HIMSELF IN EVERY ENGAGEMENT BY HIS COURAGE AND FORTITUDE, BY ANIMATING THE SOLDIERS AND LEADING THEM BY HIS OWN EXAMPLE. A PARTICULAR ACCOUNT OF THESE DREADFUL BUT, I HOPE, GLORIOUS DAYS WILL BE TRANSMITTED TO YOU, NO DOUBT, IN THE EXACTEST MANNER. THE RACE IS NOT TO THE SWIFT, NOR THE BATTLE TO THE STRONG, BUT THE GOD OF ISRAEL IS HE THAT GIVETH STRENGTH AND POWER UNTO HIS PEOPLE. TRUST IN HIM AT ALL TIMES, YE PEOPLE, POUR OUT YOUR HEARTS BEFORE HIM. God is a refuge for us. Charleston is laid in ashes. The battle began upon our entrenchments upon Bunker's Hill, Saturday morning about three o'clock, and has not ceased yet, and it is now three o'clock Sabbath afternoon. It is expected they will come out over the neck to-night, and a dreadful battle must ensue. Almighty God, cover the heads of our countrymen, and be a shield to our dear friends! How many have fallen we know not! The constant roar of the canyon is so distressing that we cannot eat, drink, or sleep. May we be supported and sustained in the dreadful conflict. I shall tarry here till it is thought unsafe by my friends, and then I have secured myself a retreat at your brother's, who has kindly offered me part of his house. I cannot compose myself to write any further at present. I will add more as I hear further. Your Portia. Green Tree, November 27, 1775 Colonel Warren returned last week to Plymouth, so that I shall not hear anything from you until he goes back again, which will not be till the last of this month. He damped my spirits greatly by telling me that the Court had procured your stay another month. I was pleasing myself with the thought that you would soon be upon your return. It is vain to repine. I hope the public will reap what I sacrifice i wish i knew what mighty things were fabricating if a form of government is to be established here what one will be assumed will it be left to our assemblies to choose one and will not many men have many minds and shall we not run into dissensions among ourselves i am more and more convinced that man is a dangerous creature and that power whether vested in many or few is ever grasping and like the grave cries give give the great fish swallow up the small and he who is most strenuous for the rights of the people when vested with power is as eager after the prerogatives of government you tell me of degrees of perfection to which human nature is capable of arriving and i believe it but at the same time lament that our admiration should arise from the scarcity of the instances The building up a great empire, which was only hinted at by my correspondent, may now, I suppose, be realized even by the unbelievers. Yet will not ten thousand difficulties arrive in the formation of it? The reins of government have been so long slackened that I fear the people will not quietly submit to those restraints which are necessary for the peace and security of the community. If we separate from Britain, what code of laws will be established? How shall we be governed so as to retain our liberties? Can any government be free which is not administered by general stated laws? Who shall frame the laws? Who will give them force and energy? It is true your resolutions as a body have hitherto had the force of laws, but will they continue to have? When I consider these things and the prejudices of people in favor of ancient customs and regulations, I feel anxious for the fate of our monarchy, or democracy, or whatever is to take place. I soon get lost in the labyrinth of perplexities, but whatever occurs, may justice and righteousness be the stability of our times, and order arise out of confusion. Great difficulties may be surmounted by patience and perseverance. I believe I have tired you with politics. As to news, we have not any at all. I shudder at the approach of winter when I think I am to remain desolate. I must bid you good-night. Tis late for me, who am much of an invalid. I was disappointed last week in receiving a packet by post, and upon unsealing it finding only four newspapers. I think you are more cautious than you need be. All letters, I believe, have come safe to hand. I have sixteen from you, and wish I had as many more. Your Portia RAIN TREE April twentieth, seventeen 1777 There is a general cry against the merchants, against monopolizers, etc., who, tis said, have created a partial scarcity. That a scarcity prevails of every article, not only of luxury but even the necessities of life, is a certain fact. Everything bears an exorbitant price. The act, which was in some measure regarded and stemmed the torrent of oppression, is now no more heeded than if it had never been made. Indian corn at five shillings, rye, eleven and twelve shillings, but scarcely any to be had even at that price. Beef eight pence, veal sixpence, and eight pence butter, one and sixpence mutton, none, lamb, none pork, none mean sugar, four pounds per hundred, molasses none, cotton wool none, New England rum, eight shillings per gallon, coffee, two and sixpence per pound, chocolate three shillings. What can be done? Will gold and silver remedy this evil? By your accounts of board, housekeeping, etc., I fancy that you are not better off than we are here. I live in hopes that we see the most difficult time we have had to experience. Why is Carolina so much better furnished than any other state, and at so reasonable prices, your Portia?" Braintree, June 8, 1779. Six months have already elapsed since I heard a syllable from you or my dear son, and five since I have had one single opportunity of conveying a line to you. Letters of various dates have lain months at the Navy Board, and a packet and frigate, both ready to sail at an hour's warning, have been months waiting the orders of Congress. They no doubt have their reasons, or ought to have, for detaining them. I must patiently wait their motions, however painful it is. AND THAT IT IS SO, YOUR OWN FEELINGS WILL TESTIFY. YET, I KNOW NOT, BUT YOU ARE LESS A SUFFERER THAN YOU WOULD BE TO HEAR FROM US, TO KNOW OUR DISTRESSES, AND YET BE UNABLE TO RELIEVE THEM. The UNIVERSAL CRY FOR BREAD TO A HUMANE HEART IS PAINFUL BEYOND DESCRIPTION, AND THE GREAT PRICE DEMANDED AND GIVEN FOR IT VERIFIES THAT PATHETIC PASSAGES OF SACRED WRIT. ALL THAT A MAN hath WILL HE GIVE FOR HIS LIFE yet he who miraculously fed a multitude with five loaves and two fishes has graciously interposed in our favor and delivered many of the enemy's supplies into our hands so that our distresses have been mitigated i have been able as yet to supply my own family sparingly but at a price that would astonish you corn is sold at four dollars hard money per bushel which is equal to eighty at the rate of exchange Labor is at eight dollars per day, and in three weeks it will be at twelve, it is probable, or it will be more stable than anything else. Goods of all kinds are at such a price that I hardly dare mention it. Linens are sold at twenty dollars per yard, the most ordinary sort of calico is at thirty and forty, broadcloths at forty pounds per yard, West India goods full as high, Molasses at $20 per gallon, sugar $4 per pound, bohea tea at $40, and our own produce in proportion, butchers' meat at six and eight shillings per pound, board at 50 and $60 per week, rates high. That I suppose you will rejoice at, so would I, did it remedy the evil. I pay $500, and a new continental rate has just appeared, my proportion of which will be 200 more. I have come to this determination to sell no more bills unless I can procure hard money for them, although I shall be obliged to allow a discount. If I sell for paper I throw away more than half, so rapid is the depreciation, nor do I know that it will be received long. I sold a bill to Blodgett at five for one, which was looked upon as high at the time. The week after I received it two emissions were taken out of circulation. And the greater part of what I had proved to be of that sort, so that those to whom I was indebted are obliged to wait, and before it becomes due or is exchanged it will be good for as much as it will fetch which will be nothing. If it goes on as it has done for this three months past, I will not tire your patience any longer. I have not drawn any further upon you, I mean to wait the return of the Alliance, which, with longing eyes, I look for. God grant it may bring me comfortable tidings from my dear, dear friend, whose welfare is so essential to my happiness that it is entwined around my heart and cannot be impaired or separated from it without rending it asunder. I cannot say that I think our affairs go very well here. Our currency seems to be the source of all our evils. We cannot fill up our continental army by means of it. No bounty will prevail with them. What can be done with it? It will sink in less than a year. The advantage the enemy daily gains over us is owing to this. Most truly did you prophesy when you said that they would do all the mischief in their power with the forces they had here. My tenderest regards ever attend you. In all places and situations know me to be ever, ever yours. End of Section 8 recording by J Martin